if you want to change the world, if you want to change your neighborhood or we want to change the state, you're not going to get very far if you go to the governor and say, we need to do this differently. So who should you talk to? The legislature. Over the past year, whether the legislature is in session or not, we've seen the Utah House and Senate flex their muscles on everything from mask mandates to redistricting. I'm Sonia Hudson. Without my partner in crime, Emily Means, this week. But don't worry, she'll be back next episode. But until then, you're stuck with me. This week on State Street, we're talking to Salt Lake Tribune columnist Robert Gerke about how, as he puts it, the legislature crowned itself king. Basically, they've given themselves more and more power over the years, and that makes the governor and local governments less powerful. Robert wrote a column at the beginning of the legislative session about how that happened. So now that we're at the end, I invited him into the studio to walk us through that and also through how lawmakers are using all that power this year. Because of COVID, we haven't had a guest in the studio for a while, so Mike check was a little rocky. Our executive producer, Caroline Ballard, had to come in and save the day. Do you, do you want to come in and move the mic? Okay. She says you sound good, but the levels look really low for some reason. So I'm a soft talker. And you're talking to a very loud talker, so this should be interesting. Yeah, I, can hear, I can hear you fine. All right. I'm going to put this a little bit closer to you. Okay. Uh, I feel like I'm getting a dental I know, right? <laughs> um, that should be fine. Okay. Let me go I'll try to not be too loud also. <laughs> well, Robert, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. Yeah, happy to be here. So before the legislature was the political powerhouse that it is now, what did it look like and how did it operate? Well, it was sort of a, a, a policy backwater in some ways. They they didn't meet every year. You know, I, w- I talked to some old timers up there who said that back in the 60s, it was sort of, you know, they would just be a rubber stamp on the governor's budget. And now, if you look at the way they do budgeting, the governor's budget is sort of just a recommendation. I had one senior uh, legislator tell me a few years ago that he appreciates getting the governor's budget because he can put it under his table leg that's wobbly. They don't really pay much attention to it anymore because they kind of do their own thing and assert their own dominance over over the process. And we've seen that grow and grow. And now we've got these legislators that they do their own budgeting, they write their own bills, they sort of dictate the terms of the engagement with the governor and and with voters and with the, with the state at large. When did the legislature begin in amassing power in a really noticeable way. Is there an event or a structural change that you can point to that you think was kind of a big turning point? The people I talked to said it was sort of in the early 90s. For a long time, you'd only had speakers serve one term, and then you had Mel Brown who served two, and you had Greg Curtis serve two, and it's sort of been the norm ever since then. And that gave the House a little bit more institutional knowledge. Uh, The speaker could kind of speak for the caucus at large rather than just sort of being a temporary placeholder. And, And at the same time, you had over in the Senate, you had sort of a coalescing of power there as well. And so you end up with a string of dynamic sort of assertive, powerful leaders who really took the House and made it a force to counterbalance, A, what was going on in the Senate, but also more so those two against the governor. So back in 2017, former Congressman Jason Chaffetz suddenly resigned in the middle of his term. And that really set off a showdown between the legislature and former Governor Gary Herbert over how to fill his seat. What happened there and why was it significant? 
Jason Chaffetz, former congressman, decided he was going to resign his seat. And the question was, you know, how do you fill this? Because state law at the time was very vague on it. Governor Herbert wanted to set the process himself. The legislature said, no, we should come into a special session and we should be the ones to do this. And it made a difference because of the, the type of candidates you're going to end up getting. The, the, the process the legislature wanted was going to get you a much more conservative candidate. The governor said, well, no, you can't call yourselves into special session. I'm not going to call you into special session. Yeah, this ought not to be a free-for-all, and we say, well, let's throw it open, and we don't know what's going to come out of it. That's not what special sessions are for. So they were kind of stuck at that point. There was talk of lawsuits and, and so forth. And so lots of drama. <laughs> lots of drama, lots of drama. But the, 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 the end result was that the legislature put a constitutional amendment on the ballot that said, we can call ourselves into special session in times of emergency. And they've used that power repeatedly during the course of the COVID pandemic. And they've also sort of expanded what they can, what constitutes an emergency. There are bills that end up on those calls that I don't think anyone would consider emergency bills, but they keep doing it. And so it's taken this power away from the governor because before he could always say, no, I'm not calling you into special session. Or, uh, you know, if we're going to have a special session, it's going to be limited in scope to these issues that we agree upon. And now it's sort of whatever legislative leadership wants to put on on these special session calls. That's just one check that the governor used to have that he's not going to have going into the future. At the time, I thought maybe it's not a bad thing because you don't want to have a governor who can just completely stymie everything that, you know, maybe needs to be done. If there is a legitimate emergency and the governor doesn't want to address it, you don't want to be completely blockaded. Yeah, like was the, the balance of power too tilted towards the governor Right, before? right. I mean, he could he can just be, he can be intransigent and he can just say, no, we're not going to do this and get his way. So so at the time, I thought, well, maybe this is sort of restoring some balance. But I didn't really anticipate that they would have such a broad interpretation of what constitutes an emergency because they can kind of shoehorn just about anything into an emergency session. You talk in this column about how the Republican Party, at least in the legislature, has become more unified. How does that impact how much power the legislature has? Yeah, so when I first started covering the legislature, there were sort of factions in the Republican Party. You had the Cowboy Caucus, which was the rural guys, and they still exist to some degree, but not with the same amount of power that they had before. Especially over in the Senate, they had sort of competing factions and, you know, sort of a Game of Thrones kind of scenario where everybody was kind of angling against each other. And we've seen, I think, over time that those factions have kind of disappeared. Adam Brown, a professor at Brigham Young University, tracks voting trends. And you see over time that people are more closely grouped together, a lot more conservative. And so what that means is that the leadership can speak with a stronger voice. When the speaker goes in to negotiate with the governor, you know that his caucus is more unified behind him, whereas in the past, the governor could maybe, you know, work with some moderate Republicans or work with the Democrats when there were you know, a sizable number of Democrats to get the legislature to, you know, go his way. Now you just don't see that, A, because the Democratic caucus is so much smaller than it used to be. It's it's almost meaningless in terms of trying to block legislation. But B, because the Republican caucus is so much more unified, you're not going to be able to chip away these these moderate Republicans as easily as you might be able to. And you need to get more of them now because the Republicans are more dominant than they were in the 80s and early 90s. 
How have top Republicans used all of this power in the past couple of years? What do you think is the most impactful thing that they've done that they may not have had the power to do or the ability to do, say, 25 years ago? Well, I think it's it's sort of manifesting itself in a lot of ways. Obviously, they're they're a conservative body. They're always going to be a conservative body, and we've seen them, you know, really emphasize tax cuts over time. I think you see it manifest in in the control that the legislature takes over school boards. The resolution against critical race theory is sort of a in, instance where the legislature inserts itself into dictating curriculum. And we've seen that in a number of different ways over a number of different issues. And then I think the last one is, you know, the the balance of power between city and county governments and the legislature. They, they, they have frequently come in and told cities, particularly Salt Lake City, how to do things. And the Inland Port's a classic example of that. Maybe something that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do if they hadn't expanded the clout that they have in relationship to the governor and in relationship to these cities and counties. So I think you just kind of see them with their hand on the wheel of policy in pretty much every aspect of the state. And it's something that doesn't show any signs of turning the other way because it's going to take either the Democrats are going to have to become a meaningful oppositional force. The ballot initiatives are going to have to become meaningful and they've made those harder as well over the years or else, you know, the the governor is going to have to really start asserting his authority and, and protecting his executive authority. But none of those things seem likely in the near future. I'm talking to Robert Gerke, columnist at the Salt Lake Tribune. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to look at how legislative Republicans have been using all this power during the legislative session and what might come next. You're listening to State Street. Support for State Street comes from the Hinckley Report podcast, a weekly roundtable discussion about the biggest political headlines in the Beehive State. Find new episodes of PBS Utah's The Hinckley Report every Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm David Fox from Sentaway, a new investigative podcast that shines a light on Utah's youth treatment industry. KUER, The Salt Lake Tribune, and APM Reports uncover how the state failed to keep kids safe, told through the stories of the teens who lived it. Sent Away is coming March 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to State Street. I'm Sonia Hudson. Salt Lake Tribune columnist Robert Gerke and I have been talking all about how the legislature has amassed power over the years. But let's turn to how they've been using it in 2022. Robert, what are some examples of how the legislature has used its expanded power during this legislative session? Well, I think we saw right out of the gate with some of the COVID legislation uh, that the legislature was not happy with the way, for example, Salt Lake City was using the authority that it had. Um, They said, okay, if you're going to have a mask requirement, you've got to go through this process. And they told counties that they could do that if if the county council or county commissions upheld the mask requirement. That's exactly what Salt Lake County did. And then, you which know, I think was kind of a surprise to the legislature. It was I, a surprise to me. I think they were really surprised that, that it went that way. And, and you can tell they were surprised by the fact that they came in and then rescinded that authority that they had. When a third of our state is subject to local health orders, the legislature can't ignore a statewide impact. We're listening to our constituents who are upset uh, regarding government mandates and other issues surrounding the government mandates. That was Senator Dan McKay talking about the bill to overturn it. And then, you know, the 
following closely on that, we had this test to stay program, which was telling school districts how to operate. And then they said, well, okay, we're now we're going to take that back. And from now on, if you want to go remote, the, the House Speaker and Senate President and Governor and the state superintendent all have to sign off on it. Well, that's sort of an unusual power for a legislative branch to have. It's an executive type veto over a decision by a school board. And it's never, to my knowledge, been exercised in the past. How has Governor Spencer Cox responded to this very powerful legislature that he now has to work with? (laughs) Well, I mean, I think he's got the tiger by the tail in some ways. You know, he's got to try to play nice with them to the extent that he can. I think the other big thing that has really shifted the balance of power between the governor and the legislature is the governor's unwillingness, frankly, to use the veto. We've seen back in the Levitt days, you know, he would veto more bills and those vetoes would hold up. Olene Walker vetoed numerous bills. And now we've seen Gary Herbert, who would veto two to three a session. And and Governor Cox, when he came in, said, I'm probably going to veto more bills than my predecessor. I'm going to veto some of your bills, probably more than my predecessors. Please don't take it personally. It hasn't really held true. And so, you know, and that doesn't necessarily reflect all of the ins and outs of policymaking. Sometimes you can get what you want behind the scenes, but he hasn't exercised, he hasn't asserted that authority that he's given in the Constitution. Really, the the only official authority he has in the in the policymaking realm. Um, and, and so the legislature has been more empowered. When Governor Herbert vetoed bills. He got overridden several times. I think it was humbling for him to have that happen and, you know, not something he wants to happen, have happen a lot. And so uh, we've seen it used more judiciously. He's also opted not to veto some bills um, that he said he disagrees with. What's Um, going on there? I'm thinking a lot about redistricting, um, that really controversial congressional map that basically assures that Republicans will be um, elected in all four congressional districts. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that was maybe just a political calculus. Is that a veto that's going to hold up or might he be overridden? You don't know until you find out. But I think he read the tea leaves on that one and, and thought that it wasn't going to play out in his favor. And, and you know, there's there's an argument to be made that, you know, the legislature, uh, particularly on the on the House and Senate maps, um, had plenty of support if they wanted to override him on that. The congressional maps, I think, could have been an interesting fight. And this is this is sort of like I was saying earlier, what's it going to take for the executive branch to sort of reassert itself? It's going to have to be willing to fight some of those fights. And, and maybe he just wasn't willing to do it. You know, a fairly new governor still still trying to build a relationship with some of the legislators. But you're going to have to fight that fight sometime and draw the line in the sand and say, this is an executive branch authority that I have. I'm going to use it and we're going to, you know, see how it shakes out. How does that compare to how his predecessor, Governor Gary Herbert, dealt with the legislature? I think it's similar in a lot of ways because, you know, Governor Cox, remember, he was Gary Herbert's lieutenant governor for a long time. I think he saw how that worked and saw maybe what worked and maybe what didn't. There there were only a handful of bills that I can recall where Governor Herbert said, I will veto this bill. And, And one of them was a constitutional carry bill that got rid of concealed weapons permit background checks. You know, he held that one up for four or five years with a veto threat, uh, and then eventually the legislature passed it anyway. But, uh, you know, I think I think maybe Governor Cox 
observed Governor Herbert's approach and and thought, well, you know, we can push as far as we can push and, and without a veto. And if we can get most of what we want, then then we get it. He's trying to both, you know, negotiate, push, maybe threaten a veto, as we've seen him threaten a veto on, on the anti-transgender athletes bill last session. And that seemed to kill the bill. I mean, that that did seem to it, be effective. It did, seem, it did seem to kill the bill. It did kill the bill. And it, it brought them back to the table this year with a bill that I think the nobody is happy with, but is is a bill that is like more likely to pass the legislature. The, the interesting thing, I think, is that both of these governors have huge approval ratings and a lot of political capital they could spend if they do it. Uh, and, and they've just been unwilling to do it. So you and I are immersed in Utah politics like all day long, five days a week, maybe more than that. But why should just regular Utahns care about the power struggle in state government? Why should they care about a more powerful legislature or a less powerful governor? We kind of all watch the governor, right? We believe that he is the head of state government and he makes the decisions. And that's not really the way it's worked uh, at the ground level. And so you have to start paying attention. And this is where it gets hard for listeners and for voters. You have to start paying attention more locally to what your legislators are doing and and how they're shaping this policy. Because, you know, if you want to change the world, if you want to change your neighborhood or we want to change the state, you've kind of you've you're not going to get very far if you go to the governor and say, we need to do this differently. You've got to start a little bit more locally and granularly. Um, I think it also uh, sort of speaks to the ideology that's driving our policy in this state. The legislature typically is more conservative than the governor is. And so I think we have a more conservative policy showing up in the state than we might otherwise have if it was a stronger executive branch uh, dominated system that we have. So an example of that is, you know, we had the the three ballot initiatives, medical marijuana, Medicaid expansion, and and the redistricting initiative. All of those were things that had been proposed for years. And, and the legislature consistently rejected. Um, But that's not where voters in the state were. So you get this disconnect between the people who are actually making the decisions and the people who are the governed, the people who are the constituents. And so I think I think that's where this the the degree to which the legislature has uh, sort of coalesced this authority and this power starts having an influence on people's day to day lives. Robert Gerke, columnist at the Salt Lake Tribune, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. Yeah, thank you. Here to help me out with what else is going on on Utah's Capitol Hill is our fabulous executive producer and KUER's All Things Considered host, Caroline Ballard. Caroline, you didn't think you could work on State Street without ever getting on the microphone, did you? I mean, that was kind of the plan, Sonia. (laughs) Well, here we are. (laughs) But I guess not. I'm very happy to be with you this week, though. So get us started, Sonia. Well, we've been talking a lot this episode about legislative control over local governments. And on that topic, lawmakers discussed a new inland port bill this week. So the inland port is basically a proposed logistics hub for planes, trains, and automobiles, well, actually trucks, near the Salt Lake City Airport. This bill they talked about is a compromise between Salt Lake City and House Majority Leader Mike Schultz. 
Salt Lake City would lose its voting seat on the board that oversees the port, but in return, the city would get more property tax revenue and more control over how the Inland Port Authority spends that money. And then in addition to that, but wait, there's more. The port would have to spend some of that money on making the project more environmentally friendly. But as with all things Inland Port, not everybody's happy. There's some Salt Lake City residents who say that this still doesn't do enough to protect the environment and air quality in their community. Plus, you've got the town of Magna that's upset uh, because it's also losing a seat on the board, but not getting any tax revenue in return. The legislature is getting closer to banning businesses and government from being able to demand proof of vaccination for service or employment, though one representative tried to water that bill down. Republican Representative Tim Hawks suggested a new version. It would have allowed health care facilities to require vaccines and left enforcement up to the state health department. But that version failed. The original version has passed the House. And by the way, it also lets residents sue a business or government agency if it violates the law. Utah is keeping its vote-by-mail system. A bill that would have eliminated it failed in a House committee this week. The legislation also would have banned turning in other people's voter registration forms for them. And that's something that voter registration drives do sometimes to help people register to vote. And this bill would have also required the state to hire an outside firm to conduct audits of each election. But again, it failed. So you'll still be getting your ballots at home. Thanks for helping me out with the news headlines, Caroline. Happy to do it, Sonia. That does it for this episode of State Street. I'm Sonia Hudson. The team includes Emily Means, Caroline Ballard, Elaine Clark, Brenton Weiniger, Renee Bright, Ivana Martinez, and Jim Hill. Our theme music was written by Roddy Nickpour. State Street is a production of KUER. If you liked what you heard, spread the love and be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening. It really helps other listeners find the show. If you want to learn more about what's going on in the legislature, Emily and I send out a weekly recap newsletter. You can sign up for that at statestreetpod.org. And we'll see you next time for our final episode of the season. Sonia, what are you most looking forward to now that the legislative session is nearly over? I'm really looking forward to getting some sleep and sanity back in my life uh, and probably going to watch a lot of really trashy reality show TVs. I I started a new season of uh, Love Island, which is like ultimate trash, uh, but I haven't been able to watch that many episodes and there's like 60 episodes per season. So I've got my work cut out for me. From KUER.